0: Everyone loves a a good TV montage, don't they? In a few weeks' time, many of us will be watching England, or potentially somebody else, lifting the Rugby World Cup, and at the end of the show, there'll be a montage. And they'll show the the great, the glorious moments of the competition. They'll show the the best tries and the tackles, the, the winning moment. They'll show the fans in the stands, you know, those that have spent thousands of pounds to go over and watch their team. And it will be maybe in some small way, glorious. I remember when I first fell in love with the montage. It was the summer of 2000, the Sydney Olympics down in Australia, and Sir Steve Redgrave, just Steve then, won his fifth consecutive uh, gold medal in the rowing. And they they showed a montage at the end of the programme. And they showed him... At uh, the, the moment, four years previously, where he said, you know, if, if anybody sees me in a boat again, they can shoot me. And then they showed, you know, the montage of him in training and all the sweat and the effort that goes in. They showed him on the start line, concentrating and yet evidently nervous. And then they showed that the moment as the, the boat crossed the finish line first and Pinsent goes up the, and jumps in the, in the, in the, the river. And, and I remember that because of the song. The song was by a band called Green Day. If you're about my, my age, Green Day is sort of a, a punk band. But this one song called Good Riddance has got the, uh, the, the sort of the chorus. It goes like this. It's something unpredictable, but in the end it's right. I hope you have the time of your life. Okay. No applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's for you, Luke. That's for you, mate. Um, it's very not like the rest of Green Day's songs. But that line, I hope you have the time of your life, that desire, that description that goes with a montage of the greatness of this world that we live in and the moments that we're experiencing, that is something like what the preacher here, Solomon, or or somebody taking on Solomon's persona, that's something like what he's doing here, the times of our lives. And it's the full picture though. It's the picture of the great and the heart the good and the bad the smiles and the tears the moments of genius and the moments of sheer ineptitude This is the poem that he gives us, poem that was once put to music by the birds is that right Steve is that what they, the band a people of a, a, a different generation may know that song The times of our lives Let's read it again, that poem that he starts chapter 3 with. There is a time for everything. And a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. The preacher is looking at the breadth and length of life. And he notices how... In every day and every moment and every season, there is a time where it feels right, where it fits. As he looks around at his own life and the lives of everybody around, he says there is these times, things just work. This is how things are supposed to be. There's a rhythm, there's a cycle. And he includes opposites, killing and healing, war and peace. He includes beginnings and endings, which is where he starts, isn't it? A time to be born and a time to die, the very start, the very end. And he includes things that are either or, silence and a time to speak. And all of this is wrapped up in 14 pairs of, of options, two lots of seven, which if you were you know, a Hebrew scholar in here, you'd read that and go, oh, he's trying to tell us something there. Seven is the, the Hebrew number for completeness or Perfection. And he's using this form of this poem to say, this is everything. This is the summation of all that is our life in this world. Our lives are made up of a cycle of times or a cycle of moments, good and bad, loud, quiet, building and breaking, mourning and dancing. And there's a reason that this poem is so popular. Not just with Christians, but but with people generally. There's a reason that a a pop band can make this a a best-selling single, because it resonates with with all of us. Our life is in this cycle. Every one of us has these same experiences. That moment, should I speak or should I not? Those times where all I can do is cry, and those other times where all I can do is laugh no matter how inappropriate it is at the time. And we can read this poem, and, and it, can, it can bring us hope. Hope in, in difficult circumstances. That there is a time to, to tear down. And so we can look down the road at Millmore, the old Rotherham football grounds, and there was a time where he just went, you know, that is not fit for purpose anymore. We need to, to move. We need to, to break it down. And we need to new, build a new one. And so they built the New York Stadium. They still cannot for the life of me work out why the New York Stadium is in Robberon. But we could look into our own lives, couldn't we? There is a time to break down. A time to say, that's enough. I've put all this time and effort into, into this relationship. But there's a time to just say, no, that's, that's the end. And so we can read this poem and say oh there's hope even on a bad day well good's just around the corner but also we could read this poem with a little bit of despair the opposite way what if I've had a good year what if there's been lots of laughing lots of dancing does that mean despair is is just a moment away Is what the the preacher here saying is this is just life a little bit like Newton's law of dynamics? For every action there is an equal and opposite reaction? Is it just that law played out on a, a global, even cosmic scale? Everything evens out in the end? Should we fear that if this year's been good, then next year's gonna be bad? Should we go around living, saying, well, one in three people get cancer. And I know that next door I haven't had it, and they haven't, so I'm going to have it. And so I end up living in fear. I don't think what the preacher is trying to do here is to set up a, a biblical version of K Sarah Whatever will be, will be. But it kind of feels like it, doesn't it? It feels as though the preacher is on a carousel, moving round and round, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, and on and on and on and on it goes. Where we're living this life and we're taking in the experiences, the ones that are wonderful and those that are sobering. But the problem is, is that if we stop at verse 8, we end up where the preacher ends up. Look at verse 9, what do workers gain from their toil? What do we get from living in this world? A bit of good, a bit of bad. A start and an end. It's just true for everybody. This poem is not satisfying. It doesn't give us a purpose for life. It doesn't give us a direction for life. Just a description of life. What is my next moment? What is my next season? What is the right time? Who decides? Is it me? Is it you? Well, after this beautiful poem, let's see where the preacher takes us next. From the times of our lives, he goes to the gods of all times. So let's move down to verse 10. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. That is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is, has already been. And what will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. Notice here that as the preacher speaks to us and to whoever his original audience was, he moves from saying there is observing the world around he says there is there is a time for this a time for that a time for this and that he moves to God has there is to God has what has God done God has laid a burden on mankind God has made everything beautiful in its time God has set eternity in human hearts God has given a gift for us to enjoy work and to and the toil that is in this world He goes from observing to now really preaching. This is what God has done. Just flip back again to verse 9, though. Sense the note of exasperation in the preacher. What do workers gain from their toil? There's a time for everything, but, but so what? God, what are you doing? Because the poem might be beautiful, but life is not always so. God, what are you doing? He brings ba- us back to the reality that this is not a world without God. I don't know where you've come from this afternoon. But I know some of you are visiting us. Our world functions day to day as though there is no God. But the core central truth behind the Bible and what we believe as a church is that there is a God. And that that changes everything. There is a world, the preacher says, where God is active. Where God is, here's the biblical term, God is sovereign over all things. What does it mean to say God is sovereign? It means that that God is king. That God is aware of all things and all people. That God is active in all things and in the lives of all people. And that God is purposeful in all things and in the lives of all people. Including each one of us. That's what it means to say that God is sovereign. He is the active king. And one of the commentators puts it like this. He says, the poem of verses 1 to 8 could describe a world without God. But it also accurately describes a world ruled by God and how God rules it. What does that mean? It means that you could read verses 1 to 8 about God. God is the one who gives life and takes life. God is the one who plants and the one who uproots. God is the one who kills and the one who heals. God is the one who tears down and the one who builds up. Life and death, war and peace. This is what God does in this world, in our world. This is what God does in the lives of people in our lives maybe we've never thought of God in those terms maybe you think if you turn up at church all you're going to hear about God is is really easy positive thing, yeah God's there God's king, God does wants the best for you God kills God tears down But if God is God, we cannot, and the Bible will not let us get away with a a simple, easy God who is nice. No, the Bible says God is great and awesome and infinitely more complicated than we are. And we're pretty complicated. God is not easy to understand. God rules over all people and all circumstances across all time and history. Listen to how the preacher now describes God's plans. God's plans are a weight on mankind in verse 10. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. God's plans anchor us. They restrain us. They don't automatically make things easy for us. But secondly, God's plans are beautiful, but not necessarily understandable. Look down again at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. So we just had this poem about the time for everything. And now he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We are limited. We are bound by time. So we ought not to think that we can understand a God who the Bible says is from eternity to eternity. A God who has always been and will always be. A God who is not limited by time. God, God's plans are beautiful, but we shouldn't expect to always see the beauty in them. We are finite, limited in, in every way. We're limited in how much we can see. We're limited by our own intellect. Have you ever had that experience? you sat in school and you've, a teacher's been talking to you and you're literally just sat there going, I have got no idea what you're talking about. Okay. That is just a, a little instance of how of, of, we're limited. And we're limited in so many other ways. A couple of the guys have just started playing rugby again in our, our church congregation, and they're discovering that they're limited and they're getting old. So, sorry, Jodie. Nick's not out, so I'm picking on you. But we are, aren't we? We are physically limited, we are emotionally limited. How can we realistically expect to understand all that God is doing in God's plans for us and God's plans in the world? We are limited in our ability to love. And we expect God to be the same. And we put our limited vision goggles on and we think, well God's got to be able to work in a way that we can understand. And the preacher says, no. We can't fathom it. We can't get our heads around it. We can't take hold of God's plans. They are beautiful. They're wonderful. But we're not necessarily going to see it. <laughs> so God's plans are a weight on mankind. They anchor. they restrain restrainers. God's plans are beautiful, but not necessarily understandable to us. God's plans... Are good for us. Look down again at verse 13. That each of them they eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. God is a a giving God. His plans are designed to be a gift to us. He wants what is best for us. And God's plans, verse 14, are undefeatable. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God's plans are unchanging, they cannot be altered by us. Sometimes we feel as though if we make a mistake, if we make the wrong move, we will completely spoil all that God's doing. We're giving ourselves far too much credit. God cannot be changed. Everything that God does will endure forever. He's God and we're not. He's unlimited, we are completely limited. But notice fifthly, God's plans are a weight on us. God's plans are beautiful but not understandable always. God's plans are good for us. God's plans are undefeatable. God's plans have a purpose. Look at the end of verse 14. God does it. God's plans. So that people will fear God's design in what he is doing for his people and all people is that we might be in awe of him. That we might acknowledge him to be all that he has revealed himself to be. That we might say with our actions and our words and our thoughts that God is great and God is good. That we would delight in his love. That we would depend on his strength. That we would hold on to his promises. That we would reflect his character and our interactions with the world and the people that he has made his love his compassion his grace his mercy his kindness his joy his patience his well fruit of the spirit like we were learning with the kids last week what does it mean for us to to fear god it is to acknowledge with our hearts and our mouths that god is who he says he is great and wonderful and gracious And that will play out in our lives. That is God's purpose for us in the plans that he makes. That's what the preacher tells us. And so I say again, God is sovereign over all things. That means that God is king. And that he is aware of all things and all people. That he is active in all things and in all people. And that he is purposeful in all things, all events, all circumstances, and in all people. Including each one of us here. That means your circumstances, your struggles. That means the week that you've just had. And that means it's our circumstances. As his people here in Rotherham, at REC, together... God is working out things for our good in a way that is beautiful but we might not understand. In a way that anchors us and and restrains us sometimes. In a way that is utterly undefeatable even by us. And so I've got a little note on my sermon notes here that just says Hardings. For Luke and Sarah your experience right now individually together as a family of moving away from us God is sovereign God is sovereign over your fears and doubts and hopes and dreams as you head across to providence God is working out the things for your good to bring you to fear him to acknowledge with your words and your thoughts and your actions that he is king and that he is good and to use your lives and your ministry to declare that to the world. And so God's sovereign over those fears that I know you have and over the sadness that you have leaving us God is sovereign. But he's also sovereign to us as we miss you. Even before you started crying there was at least three had gone on the row in front of me. We are going to miss you so much, but it is God's sovereign plan that is good for us. That you're moving on. It is beautiful in its time. Even if we don't understand it. So we are going to miss you. But we trust that God is king. And so I want to say that to you. I want to say to us. God's plans are beautiful and are purposeful. And are underfearable. Whatever your week has been, whatever struggles there are in your life, whatever God has in his sovereignty, in his kingness, in his in charge of all things and all times and all people, whatever he has brought into your life, whatever seems, and it might be a small hill, it might be a massive mountain that you feel is completely stopping everything that you'd hoped and dreamed for and seems to be working against all the things that you think God should be doing for you. Something that's making you struggle. Things that is bringing you to tears rather than bringing you happiness. Whatever that is, God is sovereign. It is not a mistake. More than that, it is beautiful in its time. Even if you can't see it. Even if you don't understand it. For our God is not small, but he is great. He is not limited, he is unlimited. But the preacher doesn't stop there. Having established the sovereignty, the kingness of God, he asked two questions. A question in our time. Verses 16 to 17, I saw something else under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. As he looks out on the world and he sees a sovereign God over it, he says there's a problem because things are not as they ought to be. Where there should be justice, where there should be judgment, there is wickedness. this is the preacher's response to a a doctrine of, of karma that basically good people get good results and bad people get bad results he looks out in the world and says there is a time for everything and yet and yet it's not working it's not working why is there wickedness instead of justice in this cyclical, rhythmic world that he's described in a poem, and with a sovereign God over, over it all, why is there still injustice? And he looks at God and says, Well, God will bring judgment. He must. He'll judge, verse 17, both the righteous and the wicked. For so there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. we often have that question don't we why is there still injustice the bible frequently asks that question where are you God what are you doing God what are we to do with that well the preacher says we turn it back to God and we trust that he will judge even if we don't see it now even in the midst of this world of times and seasons we look and go there's been far more mourning than there has been laughing There has been far more weeping than there has been dancing. And the preacher says we need to trust. God will judge. Let me read to you from Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead one of the things that Ecclesiastes does to us it poses questions but doesn't answer them and here he says well where's justice and he says God must judge because he's God and he's sovereign but he doesn't give the answers how he will judge he leaves asking it turns us towards Jesus the answer is always Jesus in Sunday school and in the main room the answer is always Jesus Jesus is the judge. God is going to bring judgment. There will be a time to judge every deed. And the preacher comes to this thing and he's feeling this tension now. The world that is, and a God who must judge. And he's beginning to come to the conclusion that there must be something outside of the cycle. Something that changes the rhythm of this world God interceding God over and that, those verses from Acts 17 give us a clue that God will send a man who will be the judge he will send Jesus who will judge every person the righteous and the wicked every deed will be brought into, into light but there's a second question hold that thought a second question a question to end our time verse 18 i also said to myself as for humans god tests them so that they may see that they are like animals surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals the same fate awaits them both as one dies so dies the other all of the same breath humans have no advantage over animals everything is meaningless All go to the same place, all come from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upwards, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? He effectively asked the same question twice. In the midst of this world, in the midst of its rhythms, and its times, and its moments... What happens when we die what happens when we die who knows if the human spirit goes up or the animal spirit goes down who knows what does happen when we die there's a question that we all need to reflect on it and Ecclesiastes is gonna bring it back to us again and again In my own mind, I was thinking, here comes our old friend death again. Preacher can't get away from it. What happens when we die? And he's bringing in. There's a moment for everything. There's a moment to be born and a moment to die. And God's sovereign, but there's injustice. And so God's got to sort that out. What happens when we die? The funeral words. If you've ever been to a funeral heard these words. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We return to from where we came from. Let me tell you, when you stand in front of hundreds of people mourning a life, you want to offer more hope than that. That we just start back at the beginning. We start as dust, we return to dust. What is the Bible's answer? Okay, all say it. What's the answer? Sunday school, and here, what is the answer? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, Ecclesiastes is driving us towards Jesus. Jesus is the answer, the resurrection, and so we find hope, the hope that the preacher is searching for, but he doesn't have an answer for yet. We find it outside a garden tomb in first-century Palestine, outside of Jerusalem, as men and women come to see a body. And they come to a tomb with this heavy stone, it's supposed to be rolled over it and it's been rolled back. And somebody comes out of the tomb and says, why do you look for Jesus here? He's not here, he is risen. There's a point in time where the man sent from heaven changes everything. Because he says there is life after death. Jesus is raised from the tomb. We've seen sometimes, the grave could not contain him. He rose. And he breaks the cycle of life under the sun. And he answers the question of verse 22. What will happen? What will happen after death? Who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Jesus can. That there is life. After death. For those who are right with God, there is physical, real, bodily life. There is food eating, people embracing life. And it is a life without sin. There is what the Bible calls resurrection life, where we will know God fully, we will trust Him wholly we will live for him perfectly and we will be joyful people. Because Jesus is the first. And all those who are trusting in him are carried with him through death to to resurrection life. At the end of time. The preacher can't see the end of time but but we're given a, a glimpse in the New Testament. At the end of time, the New Testament gives us a montage. A glorious montage of the man from heaven. Who will be seated on a throne. And all peoples across all time and all history who have ever lived will acknowledge that he is the king. They will bow before him. And they will confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. For he is the one who has been raised to new life to live forever. As king of the new heavens and the new earth. And all those that are trusting in him will be with him. They will gather around the throne and they will worship him. They will say there is nobody like you. You have changed everything. The New Testament tells us about time. It says in Romans five, verse six, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God brings all things together at just the right moment. The right moment for people like us, the people who would should fear a judgment from God because we know in ourselves that we by nature reject God. That by nature our default setting is for me what's good for me what do I think is best and whether you've been brought up in a church Christian home or not you've been brought up in another religion every single one of us by default says I'm living for me and I'm rejecting God if there is a judgment that will be the ruling for each of us And the only way that ruling is changed is if Jesus stands on our behalf and says, yes, that's exactly who he or she is, but I have died for them. I have taken the punishment they deserve and they are now mine. And they will come with me into my kingdom. God's purpose and his plans is to bring us to see Jesus. And to bring us to to fear him. And to worship him. And to know him. And to love him. And the great proof that God is sovereign over all things is his work in Jesus. That at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for me. And he raised Christ to life as the evidence that God can save people. That God can truly provide a happy, a glorious ending. So even in the midst of today's circumstance, even in this next week, if things get worse, we trust that God's great and glorious plan is to do us good. Is to do you good. listen to this verse of a hymn you fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head judge not the lord by feeble sense idea that we are limited but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face we are trusting in Jesus no matter what the immediate circumstances look like and no matter how hard they are we trust that God is for us and that he is working through these times these moments these seasons to bring us to himself they are beautiful in their times even if we don't understand it let me pray Father, we acknowledge that we doubt your goodness every day. We doubt your plans. We choose to go a different way if we could. But we see in Jesus that your plans are perfect, that your timing is perfect. And so we pray as we look on Jesus that we would trust you for tomorrow. That we would persevere, knowing that there is life after death. Knowing that there is life beyond this rhythm and secular, secular life that we are in. That there is resurrection hope. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he didn't die for himself, but he died for us. So that we might live. So that we might be brought to worship you in this world and then forever in the next. Father, help us to to worship you now. Even as we sing this final song about your greatness. Lord, free us a little bit more to trust you and to hope. In Jesus we pray. Amen.